Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The Rose Bowl. The game that inspired the college football bowl season has a long and storied history. The stadium itself is 100 years old, and in celebration of it, Pigskin Dispatch is assembling some of the top historians and authors to share the memories, people, and events that make the granddaddy of them all the special game that it is. Enjoy this Rose Bowl memory from pigskindispatch.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your portal to positive football history. And welcome to Rose Bowl Month. We are celebrating 100 years of the Rose Bowl all month long. And we have some great historians and authors and guests bringing us some of the greatest aspects of Rose Bowl history because that stadium is 100 years old this year on January 1st or 2nd, whenever the game is played. And uh, we, we can't wait for that. So uh, today we have our friend Matthew Debios joining us to talk about another great Rose Bowl. Matthew, welcome back to the pig pen. Thanks, Darren. It's always an honor and a privilege to be on your show. Privilege is all ours because uh, you have some great stories and a great presentation. We just love the, the high energy that you bring. It really makes it interesting. Yes. Uh, so Matthew, what do you want to talk about today in Rose Bowl history? Let's talk about the 1925 Rose Bowl, which is one of the one of the great one of the most famous Rose Bowl games, and in the history of that specific contest, there it was the first. It featured the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, coached by Newt Rockney, versus Stanford University, coached by Glenn Pop Warner. Two incredible, immortal college football legends there. And for Newt Rockney, it was his very first college bowl game. I mean, for also for Notre Dame as a school and for Rockney himself, it was his first bowl game as a coach. And interestingly, it would be the last time Notre Dame would play a bowl game. It wouldn't be till the 1969 season, literally the 1970 Rose Bowl, 45 years later that they would play another bowl game here. So it's it's a it's a it was a moment in time for Notre Dame University, a moment for them to grow as a football program and as a not just a, a regional power, but as a national power. I mean, this game you could say helped elevate Notre Dame as a national as a national school, a national college football power here, and it really elevated Nuke Rockney's stature too as a coach. And another aspect of this game is that it was the last game that the four horsemen of Notre Dame ever played together as a unit. Jim Crowley, Elmer Layden, Don Miller, and Harry Stuhltreher. You know, the four horsemen of Notre Dame who ran roughshod over all 
opponents during that immortal 1924 season, creating to this day one of the greatest folklore college football folklore legends of all time. I mean, one of the greatest backfields in Notre Dame fighting Irish history. This was their last game, the last hurrah for the four horsemen. Because after that, I don't think I don't think any one of them went to the NFL. They just went their separate ways. Uh, I think they all went to coaching there. Uh, Crowley coached at Fordham, uh, and it was at uh, Michigan State. Um, I think they they ended up having some spot duties uh, of playing some games. I think like Pro- the Providence Steamroller, I believe they one game. I think it was Providence had uh, three of the four horsemen playing mm-hmm. one game, but they were, it wasn't like a whole season for any yeah. of them. I don't believe. Yeah, I don't. I I won't dispute that. You know, I I've never studied it myself, but I won't dispute it. I mean, if, if that is, it is. You know, but literally, as as a college as a college uh, football unit, this was their last their last hurrah, and and for Stanford, this was Stanford's first Rose Bowl game appearance since they appeared in the very first Rose Bowl game in 1902, where they were annihilated by uh, fielding Hurry Up Yost's point a minute teams, 49 to nothing. This was their first Rose Bowl appearance. It was Pop Warner's first bowl game appearance as a coach. And um, and also this Stanford team featured the immortal Ernie Nevers, one of the greatest football players in Stanford University history. Nevers was just a fireball. I think he was a ju- I think, yeah, he was a junior because I think the following season, 25, that was his senior year as, as, as a player. He was a junior and Pop Warner, this is incredible when you think about it. He was asked to compare Ernie Nevers with Jim Thorpe. And Warner surprised people by saying he thought Nevers was the better player. Now, I, I this, this is how he based it on. Now, I would dispute that because Thorpe was such an enormous, fantastic all-around athlete. I mean, not just in football, yeah, but in baseball, track and field, and, and other sports and all of that in terms of athleticism. But the way Pop Warner explained it was that he thought Nevers was better because Thorpe, although enormously talented, if you pull off a big run, he would get satisfied with himself and maybe not try as hard on the next play or something like that. Whereas Nevers was absolutely full tilt all times. Even if he was losing 55 to nothing, he went absolute full tilt. There was no stopping him. And he and Pop Warner really admired that in Nevers. I mean, he just enjoyed playing. He would give everything he had. He held nothing back, and that's why he always uh, he always thought of Nevers as his favorite player. And Nevers was like that. Yeah, he was absolutely unrelenting. He would just no matter no matter how insignificant the game was or how far behind he was, he he gave everything he had, and he was literally the reason why Stanford went into the Rose Bowl. Stanford literally broke the University of California's domination of the Pacific Coast Conference because I told you, as as I told you before, California won four consecutive titles. In 1924, Stanford broke their their lock and they won the Pacific Coast Conference. And that's why they went into the Rose Bowl game instead of California. If if they had lost to California, then it would have been Newt Rockney taking on Andy Smith's Wonder Teams, which is a, a nice little what if scenario because those are, you know it would have been interesting the Four Horsemen versus the Wonder Team, very interesting mm-hmm. what if, but no, it was Stanford. Hmm. Yeah, they could have modern media really could have had a a great yeah. play up on that game, couldn't they? But this yeah. is a great matchup too. You have 
you know, two premier backfields, you know, the four horsemen, Ernie yeah. Nevers on the other side, two great coaches. I mean, wow, you're, that builds up for a great contest itself. But here was a little uh, understory that no one really realized about Ernie Nevers going into the game. He was not at 100%. Uh, with his last game, he badly injured his ankle. I, I don't know if it was a fracture or a very, very bad sprain. Uh, but, it, I mean, they had to put a cast on his ankle there. And he was laid up. There was a, there was a time lag between the last game in November and then, you know, uh, New Year's Day. And nearly days before the New Year's Day, the game, they removed the cast from his ankle and they asked him how he felt. And Nevers later admitted, he said, he, he said he still felt pain, but he said there was no way he was not going to be playing that game. Oh, he, even if he was on one leg, he was going to play that game. So he so oh, I feel great. But in rarely, no, he was still in pain, but he did not let that stop him. And in that game, he actually out personally outgained the four horsemen on the ground. He, yeah, I think it was over a hundred yards rush. I, I don't have the precise figure. I think over 110, something like that. He gained more yardage than any one of the men, members of the four horsemen there. And, and it was absolutely courageous what he did. I mean, even Rockney admired what his effort there, but in the end, Stanford just was no match because it was Ernie Nevers versus the whole Notre Dame team. And Notre Dame had the depth. It wasn't just the four horsemen. You had what they called the seven mules. They had one of the reasons why the four horsemen ran wild on the field is because they had a great offensive line in the seven mules who just kept opening up holes and opening up holes. And also Notre Dame had its famous backfield ship formation that no one really could stop. I mean, it was so innovative. I mean, they would set up in a single wing uh, formation. Imagine a shotgun formation where you're, basically predominantly running it's a running offense for those of you who don't know what a single wing formation was they would you know the four men would be in the backfield they would be in one position and then uh i think was it uh i think it was miller who called out the signals he would just say you know call out you know, call out a number and then shift two three hike and then at the last second they would shift and then the snap would come and and they would just catch the defenses flat-footed there and Another innovation with Notre Dame is that when they did their blocking, they wouldn't just do blocking at the line of scrimmage. They would go down the field and continue blocking. That was the great innovation behind Notre Dame because before Rockney came along with that shift, no one ever thought about you. They just thought of you just do your blocking right at the line of scrimmage. No one thought about telling your offensive lineman, okay, after you break through at the line of scrimmage, keep going, keep going, keep running and keep throwing blocks. And that's why Notre Dame had a devastating offense throughout all of Rockney's coaching career, his 12 seasons there, because it wasn't just backfield speed. He wanted offensive linemen with great, he wanted his offensive linemen to have great speed as well, because they needed to go down in the field fast to keep throwing blocks for their backs there. And that's why Notre Dame's ground game was so devastating, because that great speed, once they had got that momentum, once they broke through at the line of scrimmage, they would just get these long, incredible long gainers and just it tear up uh, through the backfields of opposing defenses there. And that's why Rockney's record was so stupendous. He won all those national championships there. You know, with the, with Gip, George Gip, before the Four Horsemen, there was George Gip. And then you had the Four Horsemen, and then in 29 and 1930, he also had another great backfield of 
you know, uh, Joseph Olding, Marty Schwartz, Marty, Br- uh, 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 Marty Brill, and uh, Frank Caradeo there that won national championships in 29 and 30 there. And great speed, great innovation. He, he had a really uh, kind of interesting innovation that 1924 season with the four horsemen, where yeah. I know a few games, I'm not sure he did it every game, where he would uh, start the substitutes and sort of wear down the the opposition, and then all of a sudden bring in the the stars. You know, the, the four horsemen would come in, and this, you know, I think some of the seven mules would come in at that time, and they would just, you know, this uh, tired, worn out team. Uh, when you talk about their depth, and then just you know run right over them. So it was kind of an interesting innovation as well. Actually, it wasn't some of the time he did. Nakri did that all the time. He called them his shock troops. Such was Notre Dame's depth as a team. His second and third line units were almost as good as the starters. So he would start his second line units. And they would, you know, uh, f- take on the opponents, basically just basically, you know, just testing and probing. They were testing plays. Okay, this running play works good. This running play doesn't really work good against their defenses. This pass play seems to work pretty good here. They're susceptible to this type of reverse here, whereas this other type of play, nah, nah, it's not really working. So about maybe midway through the first quarter or very late in the first quarter, the shock troops would come off and they would tell Rocky, okay, this seems to work here. Uh, the, 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 the opponents are using this type of defense here, this type of coverage here. We, we, uh, when you send in the first line units of four horsemen, use this type of plays here and use these type of formations. And then they would go in and then they would just cut the, their opponents a new one there. Just because they knew what would work and what didn't work. And they were fresh. Whereas the other teams were not as fresh. They didn't have because they didn't have the depth and all that. So that was not a that was not a rare uh, Rockney thing. That was a constant Rockney thing using his called him his shock troops. And in fact, in the NFL, Vince Lombardi, when he was coaching with the New York Giants in the 1956 season, he used a similar type of trick because uh, and then uh, he had Don Henrik as the backup corner to Charlie Connerly. And what the Giants would use to do was let Henrik start the game and Heinrich who was, he was a good backup quarterback, but he was like a coach on the field. He could decipher defenses and coverages very quickly. And he would look at the up as op, the opponents there for like the first part of the first quarter there. And he would test out plays, test out passes and running formations. And finally he would go back to Lombardi and say, okay, they're using this type of defense here. Uh, these plays will work here. This type of passes will work here. And then Charlie Conley would go in and he knew exactly what would work. And Lo and behold, yeah, that's why the Ch- Giants won the 1956 NFL championship. And remember, Vince Lombardi learned his football under Jim Crowley at Fordham and Frank Leahy, who both learned it from Newt Rockby there. And again, the ele- elements of the Green Bay Power Sweep were taken from Newt Rockney's, uh, you know, uh, quick openers there and, uh, and his uh, Notre Dame backfield shifting and all that. He took it all from Rockby. So there's like a lineage there, a passing along of knowledge and brilliance there. I mean, the Newt Rockby coaching tree is still one of the greatest coaching trees in all of college football history. So many of his men became coaches in their own right. And then they taught their coach. And then, and then and as passed along, you could trace it, you know, you could trace it all the way down to the present day. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Bear Bryant. Yeah. I mean, Davo Sweeney, you can trace Davo Sweeney all the way to the new Rocky coaching tree because he learned it under uh, George Stallings, who learned it from Bear Bryant, who learned it from Frank Thomas, 
who learned it from Newt Rodney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Very, very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so going back to the game, so we have this great matchup of coaching and, and backfields and uh, strategies and innovation. What, what happened in this, this contest when these two uh, behemoths met the Rose Bowl? Even though Stanford outgained Notre Dame in offensive yardage, they literally beat themselves. They gave up eight turnovers and three Ouch. of Notre Dame's touchdowns because Notre Dame won the game 27 to 10. All three of Notre Dame's touchdowns came as a result of Stanford turnovers there. I mean, let's see. I'm just checking the results here. Let's see. Elmer Leonard scored three touchdowns. Uh, he uh, uh, won on a 78-yard pick six in the second quarter there. And in the fourth quarter, a 70-yard pick six. And then also on a fumble recovery, uh, they, deep in Stanford territory, he scored on a three-yard touchdown plunge there. But three, three, three of those turnovers lead to Notre Dame scores there. Take away those, Notre, uh, the, those, those, those errors. Guess what? It's an actually much closer game, just a 10-3 win. But, hey, Notre, Stanford shot itself in the foot. You give up eight turnovers, you're not going to win that game, my friend. Uh, I mean, I know after the game that Pop Warner complained they should they should, they should award points for the fact that we outgained him and 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 Newt Rockby was not sympathetic. He said, "Oh, why why not in baseball uh, uh, count foul balls as hits and I give them runs every time you hit a foul ball or something like that?" Oh, you know, <laughs> you know, give me a break and all of that. <laughs> but yeah, but in terms of the score, no, it wasn't close. I mean, Notre Dame just dominated, and basically it was because of their superior defense. But there was one game, one chance. Stanford had a chance to make it closer. Stanford had the ball on the Notre Dame one-yard line four times. Ernie Nevers tried to break uh, break the uh, score, and all four times the Notre Dame's defense held. But such was the battering Nevers gave the Notre Dame line. Rocky had to do multiple substitutions. He had to take out three of his defensive linemen because that's how hard uh, Ernie Nevers charged. But uh, what a goal line stand! They stopped him. He couldn't break off, and and, and he got he got stymied there. And I, I, in fact, Nevers didn't even score a touchdown in that game. It was Stanford's sole touchdown was a seven yard touchdown pass from Walker to Shipke there. Uh, so he now he didn't score a touchdown at all. Sadly for Ernie Nevers there. So, uh, so Notre Dame won 27 to 10. And an interesting thing happened. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Notre Dame would not compete in a bowl game for another 45 years. Now, why, why is that? Uh, Notre Dame's powers that be uh, kind of, they, they, they were kind of, they, they didn't really want Notre Dame become a football factory. This was still a religious school, okay? And they kind of prevailed upon Rockney. I don't think we ought to do this again. And they, I mean, Rockney wasn't against playing in bowl games, but this was one time Notre Dame's administration prevailed against Rockney. They basically told him, I don't think we ought to do this again. And also part of Notre Dame's curriculum was during when the bowl games were being played, uh, the kids were, the, the students were back in school there. And that kind of interfered with it as well. So that's why you had this 45-year gap. And in fact, it wasn't until finally late 60s under Theodore, Reverend Theodore Hesburgh uh, altered the curriculum 
Finally, that could allow the students to travel to play in bowl games. And also, they needed the money from bowl games to increase inc enhance recruiting, especially among African-Americans, because even in the 60s, there weren't that many African-Americans who were playing football at Notre Dame there. And they needed to increase minority student membership and also minority membership at the football team there, expanding that as well. So you needed that flexibility. In other words, you need to start playing in bowl games to get that extra money to help you know, to expand the school there, to alter the curriculum and get uh, get better players there to aid in minority recruiting there at Notre Dame. And that's why starting in the 1969 season and the 1970 Cotton Bowl game, that's when they went back and to this day now, now they always play in bowl games there. But that's one of the, that was the lead drivers and why Notre Dame returned to college bowl game uh, activity. And also, I think in the late six was it sixty seven? I think sixty seven. Yeah, sixty seven. Yeah, uh, the AP polls decided to make a change before they would announce the national champion before the bowl games were played. But I think starting 67, now they would wait after the bowl games were played to announce a national champion. So for Notre Dame, if you want to win a national championship, that means you got to compete in bowl game competition and you got to win those bowl games to get consideration in the AP poll. So that too was another key driver in Notre Dame and re-entering college bowl game competition. Yeah, some pretty good reasons to, that's for sure. I didn't yeah, realize that yeah. there was that long of a drought that they weren't in. That, that's amazing. Yeah, not so much a drought, just a deliberate decision by the university not to engage there. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's uh, some great yeah. research and uh, great information there, Matthew. Really yeah. appreciate that. Uh, why don't you share with us, uh, you know, one more time uh, where you, you, people can get a hold of your your great books on, you know, not only football history, but you got, uh, you know, some other sports in there with some hockey and, and things in there. Uh, if you could just share maybe the titles of your books and where people can get them at. All of my books, all four of my books are up at Amazon. Uh, Bench Bosses, the NHL's coaching elite is up at Amazon. Uh, the Art of the Dealers, the NHL's Greatest General Managers is up at Amazon. And of course, my two football books, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, and Lords of the Gridiron 2, Roman numeral 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches are up at Amazon. And my last three books, the only way you can buy them is at Amazon. They're not available in stores. So you, you have to order it online. Uh, all of my, uh, uh, all, my last two books are on sale at 30% off. Uh, especially my pro football book, uh, it's at, uh, at, it's off on sale at thirty percent off, uh, and will remain on sale until after Super Bowl Fifty Seven is played. And my college football book, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, it too is on sale at thirty percent off, and will remain on sale until after the national championship game is played in mid January. All right. Well, Matthew DiBias, thank you very much for sharing this uh, great football history once again. And uh, we look forward to, we know you got got, uh, got you signed up for a couple more great uh, Rose Bowl things to help us celebrate in this Rose Bowl month. But but thank you for telling about this great game uh, back in that 1924 season. Thank you, Darren. It's always a great privilege. And I, 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 it's always a pleasure uh, being interviewed by you. We're taking a peek over at the chains and the down marker. It's fourth and long. We're going to have to punt the ball and get on out of here, but we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines, so be sure to tune in. 
we invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleat Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.